Hi, and welcome to In the Kitchen with Brett Thorne, a food service industry podcast from Restaurant Hospitality. I'm your host, Senior Food and Beverage Editor Brett Thorne. How's your summer going? I've always found that to be kind of a weird question, simply because people don't ask a similar question about other seasons. No one asks, how is your spring? Summer's also the only season with an official and unofficial start and end date. Summer technically begins with the summer solstice, the longest day of the year, which fell on June 21st this year, and it ends on the autumnal equinox, so uh, called because the day and the night is the same length. That is on September 23rd this year, in the Northern Hemisphere, of course. Unofficially, as you probably know, although I'm not sure what that means, uh, summer begins with Memorial Day and ends with Labor Day, which means that summer is wrapping up next weekend, if that's how you measure it. But I, I don't know why that is super important. I mean, since I graduated from college many, many years ago, my summers have been pretty similar to my springs, my falls, and my winters just with a different wardrobe. I work, I socialize, I travel a bit, I exercise. I think it's pretty similar for people who work in food service. Sure, there are seasonal ebbs and flows, especially in seasonal resort communities, but you take care of your guests, offer seasonally appropriate food and drink, and keep on going from one day to the next. Here in New York City this week and next are particularly quiet ones, Uh, for restaurants and bars as their guests leave town for a last hurrah before they have to take their kids back to school or whatever. Or maybe just because they want to do something before the summer ends, even though that end technically is a month away. At any rate, my guest this week, Maya Camille Broussard, opened her first brick-and-mortar bakery, Justice of the Pies, in Chicago's South Side around the beginning of actual summer. Uh, Broussard has actually been selling pies out of satellite kitchens since 2014. But as I said, this is her first brick-and-mortar spot. Uh, Justice of the Pies is a 3LC, or a low-income liability company. Sorry, low-income limited liability company. That's why there are three L's. That means its main mission is not to make profit, but to benefit the community, although... Uh, Broussard is a smart entrepreneur and indeed does make profit. She comes from a family of smart entrepreneurs, and I'd tell you more about her approach, but you would probably prefer to hear it from her. So here is Maya Camille Broussard. So, Maya Camille Broussard uh, from Justice of the Pies. Mm -hmm. Tell me all about yourself and Justice of the Pies. Um, so I created Justice at the Pies in 2014 in memory of my late father. My dad was a criminal defense attorney and his hobby was baking pies and quiches. And so I uh, created the bakery to not only celebrate his love of pies, but to honor his belief that people deserve second chances. So the bakery was formed as an L3C, which I realize every state doesn't have that formation, but it's like an LLC, but with a social mission. I see. And we have a lot of um, the programming and uh, initiatives that we activate to give back. Um, and um, so yeah, I operated for eight years as a satellite bakery, working out of shared kitchens and small private kitchens. And uh, this past June, I finally opened up my own brick and mortar on the south side of Chicago. Wonderful. And uh, so what are, what are some of the uh, 
uh, organizations that you support at Justice of the Pies? So we um, have our own initiatives that we activate, such as the I Need Love Workshop and, um, you know, during the pandemic, providing meals for um, neighborhoods that were affected by um, civil unrest, meaning like they were destroyed or the grocery stores were destroyed or damaged and had to be boarded up. Uh, but when I do a workshop and I'm working with kids, I find that it's easier to already collaborate with nonprofit organizations that already have children and programming in place. So all I'm doing is coming in to enhance their current um, uh, initiatives. And some of those organizations have included Alternatives Youth, um, the Maria uh, Coppice Center. Um, I've worked with... Um, uh, Humble, uh, it's an organization that works with uh, providing um, furniture for individuals who were once suffering from homelessness, but now are moving into a residence. They'll go in and they will, um, they will uh, furnish their apartments. So we've done work with them. We've done work with a lot of organizations from a fund. We, I try to stick, a, stick away from like fundraising aspects and really hone in on making an impact by providing uh, culinary instruction or doing something that is more hands-on and tangible. That makes sense since that's your area of expertise. Mm -hmm. And also, it, it's not always about money, is no. it? Yeah, you're my, right. <laughs> my, my late mother would get phone mm -hmm. calls from organizations trying to raise money, mm -hmm. and she would often lecture them mm -hmm. and be like, but it's not about money. Maybe you should have grassroots organizations so that you actually have people campaigning for what you believe in rather than having me give you money. I mean, but nonprofit organizations do need money. Sure, yes. You know, absolutely. to operate and to... You know, um, I mean, it is sort—it is sort of a business. I have a nonprofit organization, but what I'm referring to is, you know, donating pies for a gala. You know, as opposed to actually donating my time for children in need. So, um, and I would definitely sort of shy away from providing product for people who are paying, you know, five hundred dollar tickets or what have you, because. Um, as an L3C, we are not a multi-million dollar company yet, but also I formed my own nonprofit so that um, I, I need to make sure that all of the resources that I have are going to that nonprofit, any extra resources that I have, so that we can expand what we do with the workshops and with the programming. So um, I always make it very clear to people that when I am talking about my philanthropy, I'm very hands-on. I'm not simply just trying to raise money, but I'm also trying to make a tangible impact in the communities that I live in, which also happen to be the communities that are in need on the south side of Chicago or on the west side of Chicago, where you will find primarily minorities are living there. So by, I would think by having your own uh, nonprofit organization, mm -hmm. you can cut a lot of the administrative costs that a larger organization might have? Um, not necessarily, because I still need to pay people. They need to help me. I can't, you know, one thing that I um, have realized as a solopreneur <laughs> is I can't do it all. Right. And, um, you know, in order to find people who 
are talented, you have to make sure that they are given what they are worth and that they make a livable wage and that they're able to thrive and that they're happy working with me. And so that does require a fair salary. Uh, but what, what I, let me clarify. What I mean is when an organization or when um, someone is reaching out to me to try to raise money for the organization, they're asking me to donate a ton of product. Mm -hmm. uh, and I say no, because I am also trying to raise money for my organization, but I'm willing to sometimes donate my time if it makes sense. Um, and I think that um, a discussion that could be had in a culinary world is, you know, a lot of people ask chefs for free food. And oftentimes, especially when you're working with baked goods, the profit margins are very slim. And I don't have an alcohol license, so I, don't, I can't make up that you know, revenue in alcohol sales, which is a big boost for many in the restaurant industry. Totally. So um, I, just, I just relayed that messaging because I, I get a lot of requests, even now, when people find out um, what I do. Oprah says something really um, interesting once in one of her talks that I heard her say. She said, you know, when people find out that you are a giver, they want you to give even more. <laughs> and it's true. not like they want, you know, someone else to be a giver and say, oh, why don't you give like this organization or like this person, but rather is this person gives, let's ask them to give more. So you have to create boundaries while also uh, maintaining uh, your ethos and the work and the impact that you're doing. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so it has to be rewarding to teach young people how to bake. Is that what you do? You come in and you say, here's how you make a pie or a quiche or whatever? Well, the way that I impact young people doesn't necessarily have to do with, um, you know, the pies that I teach them. Sometimes the way that I impact young people is simply existing and existing in excellence. And a prime example of that is um, the representation that I give when I am on Base Squad or Netflix. People turn on Base Squad and someone's young child who is four years old with a cochlear implant sees me thriving in my field. And when they find out that I'm a member of the deaf and hard of hearing community, they are flabbergasted and they say, mom, I want to be a chef like her. And so you have a little boy who sees me, wants to be a chef, and his mother goes out and buys a play kitchen set. You know, she says, my son watches you every day, and when he watches you, he goes to his play kitchen set, and he pretends like he's cooking. That is a major impact. Sure. That is my way of giving back. My way of giving back is to be open about who I am and what I've lived through so that people can see that it's possible for them to thrive at their highest self. How did you, speaking about thriving and succeeding, how did you uh, develop the resources to found Justice of the Pies? So I started Justice of the Pies with um, just $7,000 that I raised in a Kickstarter campaign. And when I started the bakery, I was coming down from a art gallery that I had closed. And the art gallery also had a bar. So I did have two liquor licenses. And one of the things that I learned from my first entrepreneurial endeavor is that um, overhead costs can really kill your business. And while I was never in the red, I was always in the black. I never made a profit. And um, when I started Dresses of the Pies, I wanted to see how um, 
how can I grow this brand? How wildly popular could this brand be with the minimal amount of resources and with just some good old equity sweat? And so, um, or sweat equity. Uh, either way, equity sweat, sweat equity. They both sound um, good. But, um, so I started with $7,000. I did not get a bank loan. And to be honest, as, as uh, successful as I've been over the years, it's still very hard for me to get a bank loan because I'm a black woman and banks don't believe black women, even though black women make up the majority of new entrepreneurs that are coming into the market. Um, but I'm very proud of having um, built the bakery from a grassroots perspective and from the ground up and year by year, just doubling my revenues. And, um, you know, that comes from, uh, I think, being a theater major and being able to uh, um, employ great storytelling skills to uh, educate the consumer about my brand. It comes from having an excellent product or always trying to create new and interesting products. And it comes from um, tenacity and a um, uh, an intention to never fail. So how what, what kinds of sort of daily obstacles do you have to overcome like when when does that tenacity really kick in well everyone you know being a business owner especially when you're running a restaurant i believe you are the duck on the pond everyone sees you gliding but underneath you are your feet are constantly going you're constantly scrambling um, I recently attended a festival or a food festival, food event, and I thought that it was very run, uh, well run, and I was complimenting it. And the person, I was complimenting um, one of the people in charge of the logistics, and they basically were like, oh my gosh, if you only knew like all of the cluster Fs that were happening behind the scene, and I'm like, nobody knows. Nobody knows. Nobody can see it. And um, but I totally get what she was saying. She was saying like, "Hey, it looks great on the outside, but we are sweating bullets on the inside." And that is what it's like having a business every day, most days. Um, you know, there are so many people who come into my new brick and mortar, and they're so excited to be there. So they're so supportive. Um, they're, they they. Um, are constantly thanking me or my mother. My mother runs the POS machines. She's the front of the house. They're constantly thanking us for coming into that neighborhood. You know, the neighborhood deserves something like this. But then you always have one or two people who have, who have something to say, mm -hmm. negatives to say. And it's every single day there's somebody that always complains and it's never good enough. Now, just like that duck that is gliding upon, you know, on the pond, I can let it roll off like water in a dust bag. But when you think about um, the the barrage of comments or complaints every day, uh, it can it can kind of take a toll on the spirit that you are trying to create in your bakery or in your establishment in in your neighborhood. And this, you know, they're small things. For example, I only take cards, and I only take card, credit cards for one reason. Um, the, the, my team consists of mainly young people and women. 
and it's not safe for us to carry cash in the neighborhood. My bakery has already had three break-ins um, during construction. So there are eyes on us. And we, we can tell when someone is coming in to case our place out. Because they come in, they look around, and they leave. <laughs> it's so, it's like, dude, you're being so obvious, you know. You're coming in with a plastic bag full of stuff that you bought from another establishment, and you're just looking around. And when they see that we don't have cash, they leave us alone. And I think that that has been, you know, a knock on wood, that it continues to be the reason why we are able to remain safe. Um, but then there are people who come in and say that, because you only accept credit cards, you're being discriminatory against uh, black people who cannot get credit cards. And I understand that. But when you weigh, you know, not being able to service certain people who cannot obtain a credit card with my safety, I'm gonna go with my safety and I have to be a little selfish here. And that's just one example where you do a lot of good, but people are always gonna find something bad. <laughs> well, if they, yeah, some people will walk into a restaurant looking for a fight. I don't understand, like, why? Go home, cook your own food. I, I, don't, I don't get that. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting what you say about the, the duck on the pond, mm -hmm. because I think a lot of restaurant owners are like that. Like everyone in the dining room, they're having a lovely time, and it's very pleasant. And no matter what's happening in the kitchen, the, the roof could collapse, mm -hmm. destroy all your kitchen equipment. They would still... Mm -hmm cook the food, get it out, pretend that there's no problem. And mm -hmm. I think that's an amazing thing about uh, uh, the restaurant industry. And it, it is, as you indicated, it's a performance. Mm -hmm. It's theater. The show must go on. I had a teacher who said, there's show business and there's business show. And that was Professor Henrietta Atmos. And she said, you know, you put on a performance, but you can't um, forget that you have a business to run. True. Yes, you have to be profitable. Mm -hmm. Or it doesn't matter how good you're trying to be mm -hmm. if you don't exist. Right. So why did you decide to open a brick-and-mortar place? The goal was to always open a brick-and-mortar, but I did not want to open a brick-and-mortar until I, until two things. One, I felt that I could sustain the business and that I would have a strong customer base. But two, it was really important for me to own my space. When I had the art gallery, I it was... 1,500 square feet. We put in $60,000 worth of renovation that we needed and plumbing, not, not, not you know, the pretty, <laughs> the pretty stuff, but infrastructure. Mm -hmm. um, we spent $60,000 and we were only in that space for three years. And we took out a bank loan in order to do that. And I enhanced this person's property to the point where when we left, um, another bar went in and they didn't have to do any of the plumbing, you know, work. And, um, you know, I was young, I was, you know, in my late 20s, and I said never again. So I, the next time I have a brick and mortar, I am going to own this space because ownership is key to wealth. And uh, my grandparents did not have high school degrees. They dropped out of high school, but they were prolific entrepreneurs. They built their house from the ground up. They built their bar. They had a, a show lounge that was a um, package liquor store, package goods liquor store in the front and a bar in the back with a stage um, and uh, space for jazz fans, shake dancers and female impersonators. And then off to the side, they rented a little shack that was a barbecue juice joint. And they were so successful because they were owners of the space. And you know, it's not like they walked into some money. <laughs> you know, they migrated from the South to the south side of Chicago 
but my grandfather was a taxi cab driver. My grandfather had a dump truck and he would um, take rocks from the uh, quarry to Lake Michigan where they were building out the Lake Michigan uh, Lakeshore uh, Lake Line in uh, Chicago. Um, so everything he did, he would save every little bit. They would, you know, literally make a tally of what they had. Okay, I'm going to buy a new car. Let's go on a lot. Cash. I'm going to start open a business. Cash. You know, I own it. Cash paid off. And that's the that's the mindset that I wanted to have with this business. So I purchased a 4,000 square foot building that was my mother's childhood dentist office. No. And I transformed it into a bakery, a teaching kitchen, and now we're currently working on um, building out the office space. And I've been able to do this um, because I have people who believe in what I'm doing, and therefore I've gotten grants from the city and from private institutions to make this a reality. Because I went into a blighted corridor in a blighted neighborhood, and they wanted to see me transform that and to encourage more entrepreneurs to come to that neighborhood and give the people what they deserve. Did you also grow up in that neighborhood? I did. I'm not in the neighborhood that I am currently in, that my bakery is in, but I did grow up on the south side of Chicago, 10 minutes away from where my bakery is. And um, right before I became an entrepreneur, I was a teacher in a school that is exactly three blocks away from my bakery in the Avalon neighborhood. So I am located on 86th and Blackstone. The school is on 83rd and Blackstone. What did you teach? Art, visual oh. art. Mm -hmm. That's nice. So you, you've done theater, mm -hmm. you have done visual art, mm -hmm. and you're doing pastry and arts. Dance. And dance. Mm -hmm. And pastry arts, and I like to say that Food is the only, only art that you need to survive. Oh, oh, I wasn't going to say that, <laughs> but that's good say. too. You use all five senses. Yeah, with you art. do use all five senses. But I also say that, you know, if you don't play a piano, you'll live. Right. You know, if you don't uh, perform in a play or, you know, uh, come out of the wings after doing a, you know, uh, a strenuous dance number, you'll live. But if you don't eat, you won't live. And I really wish that more and more people would start talking about the culinary arts in a way that they talk about fine arts. And not, not in terms of critique, but in terms of recognizing it as a fine art form, because that's what it is. And it's an art form that, by definition, you destroy. You destroy. <laughs> and no, you enjoy. <laughs> yes, also. But it's gone. It's gone. Although, so is dance But so is dance. Yeah, that's you know, a good point. Um, so is a concert. That moment lives just for that moment. You know, um, I think about what Beyonce is doing with her current concert. I, I cannot attend big concerts because it's really hard for me to follow. I don't enjoy them, you know, being uh, hard of hearing. But I watch the videos and um, I really like what she's doing in terms of audience participation because she created these moments that people are a part of so there's a moment in one of her songs where she says um everybody on mute and the whole stadium supposedly is to go mute but now each city is competing with each other to see who actually goes mute um and i think that's so fun because the people are going to remember this and the moment is there and they can't ever revisit that you know and the food yes the moment is there and you can't revisit it unless you go and see that chef or unless you try to make it yourself Someone once told me that even if you make something yourself, it's not gonna be the same as yours because I was a little hesitant, like, should I put this recipe in my cookbook? I really love it, it's a bestseller. 
And uh, I was told they're still gonna come to you because the best way to make it or to eat it is the way that it's the way that you make it. Even if they make it themselves, they're gonna want to taste the way that you make it because that's a moment. Well, maybe they also will appreciate that it takes time to bake a pie, mm-hmm. and that buying it from you is worth it because, mm-hmm. yes, probably it's better because. You know how to do it. You have it mm-hmm. all set up. But also, it saves them all the mm-hmm. time and energy. Mm-hmm. And some people love baking, mm-hmm. and some don't. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> sell the pies to the ones who don't. Sell the pies to the ones who don't. Come and get it. <laughs> uh, so what kinds of uh, plans do you have for the future? I never talk about my plans. And okay. um, I recently visited a panel that um, Mrs. Sheila Johnson was on. She's the CEO of... Salamander Collection. She's a prolific businesswoman and a billionaire uh, and self-made in her own right. And one of the first things she says is never never share your plans. And I couldn't agree more. And the reason why is because um, your plans could change. Uh, studies have shown that when people talk about it, instead of being about it, they're less likely to be about it. <laughs> oh, interesting. And, you know, think about how many people who say, oh, I'm writing a book. And then 10 years later, you're like, what happened to that book that you were writing mm-hmm. or that play that you were writing? Oh, I'm still tinkering around with the idea. You know, <laughs> you know, I don't have anything on paper yet. But also, you have to protect the energy of your ideas as a creator. There are people who are definitely rooting for you and wanted to see you succeed but make no mistake that when you are successful there are people who envy that success and they wish for your failure so in order to protect the energy of your future plans you don't talk about them that's fair Mm -hmm. uh do you have advice for young entrepreneurs who want to get out there maybe well whatever it is Mm -hmm. what advice do you have for young people trying to get their start um i think currently we live in a microwave society everyone sees something that you know is successful and think that it came immediately you know i'm in my eighth year of business and i think that i didn't start to see some i've always had success but i didn't start to see recognition for my success until maybe two and a half three years ago then i started to you know uh people started to learn about me and the word started to spread so that's six years in (laughs) there are so many people who look at what i do and think that they could take my blueprint. Well, first of all, they don't have that blueprint, but they can take what I do and recreate it and be up and running in six months and have the same level of uh, visibility and success. And they could maybe, you know, but the likelihood of everyone being able to uh, recreate um, what I've done or what many other successful people and chefs have done and have a seat and immediacy in success is slim. So because of the microwave society that we live in, I would tell young people, you must pay your dues. There's so many people who come in, um, come out of culinary school or out of a eight week intensive and say, okay, I'm ready for the world. Okay, but the world is not ready for you (laughs) uh, because they don't know you, they haven't seen your work, you have to pay your dues. So that means um, stage, do an internship, work under a chef for several years, learn the processes, learn the flow, um, travel, you know, expand your personality, come up with your own ideas instead of trying to ride on somebody else's coattails. Um, That is, uh, I think the word of the day would be marinade. Let your success be a product of something that has marinated over time. 
I have some chicken thighs in my fridge right now that are marinated. <laughs> I'm sure they'll be tasty. Oh, yes, they will. Uh, so you are, we're in New York. You are uh, at Platform by mm-hmm. the James Beard Foundation. Mm-hmm. What are you doing here? I am um, uh, doing my chef in residency uh, for the month of August, which is sponsored by Pepsi Dickin, an initiative that focuses on supporting uplifting businesses and entrepreneurs of color. And uh, we are at Platform, which is literally a platform, a stage with a beautiful kitchen for chefs to showcase their finest work. But it also allows um, diners and supporters to have accessibility to the chef and to be able to uh, try their cuisine, you know. Um, before something like Platform, you had to wait until someone had a residency at a at a restaurant or at a kitchen to taste their food. So someone from Alaska would have to, you know, go to Tatiana in New York or go to Ever in Chicago and do a residency for people to take this Alaskan cuisine. But now you have one platform created by James Beer Foundation where people can come and experience something new every week, every month, um, all year long. And um, now is my month and it's my week. So I'll be doing three separate events. The first includes a book talk and signing. I have a cookbook called Justice of the Pies. And in the cookbook, I feature 10 stewards who use their work to positively impact the lives of others. And then I create a recipe uh, inspired by their work. So in in the book talk that will take place um, at the platform, I will be interviewing Cleaver, who is one of the stewards in my book, and he is the creator of the Black uh, Joy Project. And then we're going to sample pies that I made that's inspired by his work. Then um, I will also be doing a dinner um, in which I call It Takes a Village, after the African proverb, it takes a village to raise a child. But essentially the idea is that it takes a village, you know, as we rise, we have to pull each other up. So I invited my, I call them my chef bays, <laughs> B-A-E. Um, my really good friends who are black women in the culinary industry, we are doing a collaboration dinner and that includes Chef Adrian Cheatham, who is a top chef runner up and a cookbook author as well. And Chef Ferial Abdullahi, who is the executive chef of Mar in the Chelsea neighborhood. And she's also a Food Network star. And then the wines will be paired by um, Somalier Kelly Mitchell, and it is an evening of all black women bringing you the very best dinner you've ever had. Um, and then lastly, I am going to be doing a workshop with children. I have a workshop that I activate called the I Need Love, like kneading dough. Oh. And so I am uh, recreating that workshop here, but I'm collaborating with the Center for Hearing and Communication to activate this workshop. All of the children who will be attending are members of the deaf and hard of hearing community. And that is what consists of my chef and residency here. Wow, that's that's busy, but I'm yeah. sure you're used to that. Uh, are you eating anywhere in particular while you're in New York? Yeah, I love Chouquette. So I'm definitely gonna go and see my friend, Chef Aisha over at Chouquette. And I have a friend who's been wanting to go and can never get a reservation. And I say, I think I know somebody. (laughs) So we're going to go there. Um, I'm also going to go to Chelsea Market. I've never been there um, because every time I'm in New York, I'm running to do a morning show or uh, a book signing, and I never have an opportunity to slow down. 
and because of the opportunity that I hear I have here with a chef in residency at James Beer platform I'm able to take a little bit of time to explore the city more so I'm going to check out the Chelsea market and if I can slide into Tatiana I'm going to do my best so we'll see <laughs> That it's it's one of the plan. hottest tickets and hottest seats um, and the hardest restaurant to get into at the moment because it's been named uh, the best restaurant of New York City. And Chef Kwame is doing wonderful work there. Yes, I haven't been yet either. I'll uh, get in at some point. At some point. <laughs> I have one last question, which is what's your most popular pie? Um, it depends on what, uh, what season it is because, you know, every pie is not for every season. In the fall season, it is sweet potato pie and uh, bourbon pecan pie. And then in the spring season, it is strawberry basil key lime pie. Mm, those and both sound it. great. Yeah. Well, Maya Camille Broussard, mm -hmm. so nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. This was lovely. Hope we get to do it again. Yeah. But in the meantime, enjoy your stay. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you.